The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Sacred Life. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 and 36 through 47. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. In 1964, Bob Dylan uh, sang the song, The Times They Are Changing. He was right. But I wonder if he really knew just how right he would be. The far-sweeping cultural change that was brought about during the 60s in America have picked up speed in the past 10 years, 10 years or so. Um, but it's, it's not my purpose to be a cultural, cultural commentator this morning. Uh, you can take a look at your newsfeed. You can see how fast our values, our cultural values, and our cultural ethics and morals are changing. Um, It's my job as a pastor to comment upon the culture only as it relates to the church and it affects us as believers living in that culture. This is my area of focus. This is my area of expertise. And to do that, I need to give us a brief history lesson to kind of catch us up to speed. The scriptures that were just read this morning are from Acts chapter 2. They're fairly well known and popular verses. If you've been around here at Sacred City, you've definitely heard them before. Uh, Many of you maybe have memorized them. You know them by heart. And these verses are describing what happened in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. Jesus of Nazareth, a historical person, had already been executed. He had already resurrected from the dead. He had been seen by his disciples and over 500 witnesses. And then he told his remaining believers to go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit is going to come. Jesus said, I must leave and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Go wait in Jerusalem. Then Jesus miraculously ascended into heaven to be glorified at the right hand of God the Father. Now, What I want us to see this morning is that this was all happening in a society that was radically unchristian, okay? Jerusalem was not a Christian nation. They were under Roman control, so they were pagan pagan influence or pagan culture. They were polytheistic. They had many different gods. It was really okay to worship whatever God you wanted to worship as long as you paid homage to Caesar and paid taxes to Caesar and you're willing to really kind of worship Caesar. You could worship any other God. It didn't really matter. 
So the early Christians, they were beginning this new life with Jesus gone as part of God's new community, what they began to call the church, the ecclesia in Greek. So the, the church, this was God's gathering, God's community, God's fellowship of people. In a society, and they started this in a society, think about this, that they were the minority. Now what happened next has left the world's greatest sociologists scratching their heads in disbelief. In less than 300 years, 120 Christians multiplied to over 20 million. Pull your phones out, do the math on that. Now remember, they did this in a culture that wasn't Christian. Oftentimes it was hostile to Christianity. Many of them during this time, Christians were thrown to the lions for sport in the Colosseum in Rome. So how did they grow and how did they multiply and eventually take over the entire Roman Empire and much of the world? It was a religion that was at best tolerated. They had wacky views. The people looked at them and said, you believe a man came back to life? Like physically, not just spiritually. They were okay with spiritual resurrection, but physically, no. The, the, the pagan uh, culture of that day was very liberal with their bodies. They had sex with whoever, open marriages, uh, men could have uh, a wife, but have boys and girls on the side. That was really fine. But they were very conservative when it came to their resources. So they didn't really care about the poor. They didn't have government to take care of the poor. They didn't really care about the poor. The poor just suffered. And now these Christians are on the scene and their values are completely the opposite of the culture. They're very conservative with their bodies. They're, only, they're, they're, they're saving sex for just a husband, just a wife in a covenant of marriage. No sex outside of that. And yet they're liberal with their finances. They're liberal with their resources. And the culture didn't really know how to make sense of this. They were living in a culture that was very antagonistic to Christianity. Think about this. At this time, they had no church buildings. They had no formal influence on culture at all. You couldn't walk up and say, hey, where do you go to church? Right? There were no Christian kings or rulers or governors that we know of until Constantine in AD 312. I think that's an important question for us to ask. How did this happen with all of this? You know, they're antagonistic to the gospel. They're antagonistic to Christianity. They have no influence. How do they go from 120 to 20 million in less than 300 years? Well, why do we need to ask this question? I think it's important for us because I think if you look at our culture today, we are fast approaching a time where we will be living and we are living in a culture that's very similar to the early church that we read about here in Acts. See, when Emperor Constantine, uh, he became the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Now there's a lot of debate about whether he was really a Christian or if he just saw what was going on in the people and converted to Christianity for political means. There's a lot of debate about that. But this is what happens. Listen, Christianity is this underground movement it's his hidden movement. There's no church buildings. Everything's taking place underground, behind closed doors. It's very secretive, but it's multiplying greatly. And then Emperor uh, Constantine gets converted, okay? And in this moment, what happens is he gives this thing called the, the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, which for the first time ever, it outlawed the persecution of Christians, and it, and it began what is now called Christendom. So uh, it outlawed uh, the Colosseum. Now they, it, they kept going kind of secretively for a long time, but it outlawed you. Okay, that's a good law, right? Stop throwing Christians to the lions. It's a good law. Thank God for that law. But what happened was when he converts to Christianity as the uh, ruler, as the emperor of Rome, this huge empire, he now makes well, it happens a little bit later, but he now uh, makes Christianity 
mainstream. It's no longer this underground movement. It's no longer only behind closed doors. And he, and, and society as a whole, the world as a whole kind of enters into what we now call Christendom. Okay. And I'm going to define that here in a minute. Christendom. Well, I can do it right now. Christendom is basically when the majority of a people or a culture or a people group are Christian or are influenced Christian or are influenced by Christian values, Christian ethics and mores. Okay. So now what happens then? He's the first um, emperor to be converted to Christianity. Then about 60 years later, 70 years later in, in uh, uh, 380 AD, Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman empire. Okay. Now, so that means the emperor says we are now a Christian nation. It's our official religion. Now here's what we need to understand. If the president of the United States is a Christian, does that mean we are a Christian nation? No, it does not. Here's what the Bible says to be a Christian. A person must be born again by the power of the Holy spirit through believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore a nation cannot be Christian. I'm going to say this. I'll say it. a business cannot be Christian. Can't happen. People can be Christian. Nations can't societies. Can't organizations. Can't. People can. Christendom, though, is this time in history where Christianity and its morals and its values and its worldview is the dominant way of seeing the world, is the dominant culture, is the dominant shaping influence on a society. See, many people say that America was founded as a Christian nation. Now, this is true in one sense, but it's false in another the people who founded America were in a large majority Christian. Almost all of them had a Christian worldview, even though they were deists, they believed in God and they believed in morality, um, but they didn't and they, uh, kind of a Christian view of God, but they, didn't, they weren't Christians themselves. They had a Christian worldview. So America was very much shaped by and through a Christian worldview. But America is not and never was a Christian nation. This is why we have the first amendment where it's stated that no national religion be established. No national religion. We're not going to say if you want to be an American, you have to be a Christian. That doesn't work. Okay. That's what Rome did. That's what imp the emperors did in Rome. They said, we are now a Christian empire. So everyone must convert to Christianity. Listen, converting people by the edge of the sword or converting people by threats is not the way of Christ. It's not the way of Christianity. This is why we have freedom of religion in our culture. We're not a Christian nation. We've never been a Christian nation, but we have been deeply influenced by Christendom, Christian values that have been passed down through the centuries. So is it true that our country was deeply influenced by the Bible? Absolutely. It's influenced by the Bible. It's influenced by the reformation. It's influenced by um, the influence of just Christians. It's influenced by the enlightenment, but it's false to say that we all, we have, or ever have been a Christian nation. Now, why do I do this? Why am I giving this little brief history lesson for about, let's just say 2000 years, the Western world has been living in what we call Christendom. We have our views of morality, our views of ethics, our views of taking care of the poor have been influenced by Christendom, by Christianity or Christian values. Okay. There's no doubt the Western world has been strongly influenced by that. But if you haven't noticed, Christendom is dead. Christianity, Christian values, Judeo-Christian values no longer hold sway over our country, over the rest of the Western world for that matter. Christian values are no longer esteemed. They're no longer believed to be good or true. 
Christian leaders are no longer desired by the majority of our country and churches hold very little influence in our society. Just 10, 15 years ago, if a politician wanted to be elected president, they literally would go to large churches and campaign in large churches. It's not even needed anymore. Nobody even wants that anymore. Nobody even really cares about the quote evangelical vote anymore. It's not needed. 60 years ago in our city, not less than that, 20 years ago in our city, you could start a conversation with, so where do you go to church? Where, where does your family go to church? And the large majority of our people in our city would rattle off a name. They might be nominal churchgoers, but they go to church. That wouldn't even be an appropriate question today. Less than 3% in Europe are Christian. And many say that, our, that we're following in their footsteps. The large majority of people, even in our city, which, you know, is, they don't even attend church at all. They don't even see the necessity for attending church. See, in one sense, this is all the death of Christendom. Okay? And in one sense, the death of Christendom is painful. Christians, we once had this influential position in society where people cared what we thought and cared what we believed, but now we are once again a, min a minority. We have lost most, if not all, of our influence in the larger culture and are now being ridiculed again for our beliefs and our subsequent way of life. We should expect this because I'm going to say expect it because there's more to come. We will be ostracized. We will be marginalized and we will be persecuted for our faith. Jesus commanded it. We've experienced a long run at Christendom and we didn't get persecuted much, but it's coming in large swaths across our country and the Western world specifically. I don't know how bad I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know how bad it's going to get. But Christians need to be prepared. Many of us are still scratching our head and wondering, when did this all happen? How did this move so fast? Our culture is swinging on a pendulum really quick, and we're moving what I see as towards um, this culture that we used that Christianity was first dropped in in first century Roman world. So in one sense, it's bad, right? Chris, death of Christendom is bad. We don't have this influence. We can't expect, like if you just, you know, you used to could kind of just let your kids spend the night at people's house. You know, they're probably pretty good moral people. They've got this Christian worldview. Now we really don't have any idea what kind of worldview they have. We don't have any idea what set of morality they have, what kind of beliefs deep down they have. But in another sense, now this is weird. You're like, oh man, he's a doomsday preacher. <laughs> kind of. But in one, another sense, praise God, Christendom is dead. See, in Christendom, nearly everyone went to church, lived a good moral life, but few were actually Christians. Few were actually converted. You couldn't tell the difference between a Christian and an unchristian because they were all good people. You ever read the preaching of the fiery Jonathan Edwards? This is what fired him up. He believed the majority of the people sitting in the seat were actually unconverted good people that just came to church on Sunday because that's what good people did in that day and age. Good people go to church and raise their kids in church that's what good people do, but they were not actual Christians. Few people had actually had an experience with God and actually believed the gospel and actually had a heart change through the power of God, through the Holy Spirit. So it was really hard in that culture, in that time during Christendom, to separate Christians and false Christians. This is why you hear, well, what about the Crusades, right? These people going out and converting people at the swords. That's not the Christian way to do things. That's the Christendom way to do things. It's not Christians out there, you know, convert or die. 
That's a Christian empire. That's power mixed with the values of Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. So as Christendom continues to tumble around us, so does that false and hypocritical religion. And the false Christians who used to come to church to feel good about themselves and to feel more moral and upright than other people, those folks no longer come to church and they just stay home and they feel good about themselves staying home. And we say in one sense, good riddance. Because hypocritical religion is what pushes many people away from Christianity in the first place. Now what's interesting, during Christendom, all you had to do, this was like the field of dreams time for church planters. Okay? You know the field of dreams right now? If you build it, they will come. That's all you had to do. You build a beautiful basilica and just people fill it. 15 years ago, even in our city, you hire a good preacher, you get a good worship team, you build a big facility, you've got a lot of things and bells and whistles going on, and people just naturally come because they just go to church on Sunday, and so they want to go to the best church, so you build the best church, and people will fill in. Many of those people, not converted. Many of those people, not Christians. They do it because it's history. They do it because it's tradition. They do it because they feel it's a good thing to do not because they've been converted. It's no longer the case today. That wasn't the case in Acts 2. It wasn't the case in the entire New Testament. They didn't have buildings. They couldn't just do it, do that. They had to believe the gospel. They had to be changed by the gospel. They had to live in a new gospel-centered way. They had to live like missionaries in their culture, underground, behind closed doors, under the threat of death, live like Christians, and that's when Christianity multiplies. So, well, why does this happen? So we, we want this is what we're kind of doing with this series. We think the church needs to get back to her roots. We think our society is becoming more and more like the society of first century Jerusalem and, and, and Rome and the Roman Empire, more and more pagan. What does that mean? Anything goes. Worship all the gods. It doesn't really matter as long as you're a good person, as long as you do these culturally acceptable things, as long as you have these shared values. It doesn't really matter what you believe. And so because of our culture is getting to this, Christendom is dying, we're getting to this place, we believe that the church needs to get back to her roots. We can't just expect to be around in 20, 30 years because people go to church. So we call this the sacred life. We call it the sacred life because Christianity was never meant to be something you did on Sundays. It's a life. If your faith affects one day a week, it's a false faith. You should have no hope in it. It's fake. It's phony. It's dead. To be a Christian is a whole new way of living, a whole new way of seeing the world and living in that world and living for that world and living for the glory of God. And so that's a sacred life, a life devoted to God. And so that's what we want to do. We want to have a sacred life devoted to God as a part of his new church, as part of his community. So from Acts 2, if you want to open up your Bibles, preach from this morning. That was a long intro, eh? From our Acts 2 passage, I see two great roots to the sacred life, okay? Two great roots that must go down deep into the, that that create the sacred life, okay? Now the sacred life, this is the Christian life. And the Christian life is lived as a part of God's new community, God's church. So I, I see there's two primary roots that make up a healthy church. And I'm going to label them like this. One, gospel doctrine. And two, gospel culture. Anytime one of these attributes are missing from a church, it is unhealthy and in danger of dying. In danger of becoming a dead church. And I, when I say dying, I don't mean closing its doors. 
I wish when a church died, its doors closed. Unfortunately, that's not the case. A church can go on living and having members and having people and having sermons and having worship and yet be dead from the inside out. See, one of the reasons it's so hard to get people to come to a healthy church is because they've had so many bad experiences in unhealthy or dead churches. Now, I know my, la- my language is going to offend some people. Who does he think he is to call a church healthy or a church unhealthy or a church living or a church dead? Well, I'm just following in the footsteps of this man named Jesus, who in Revelations chapter 2, verse, or chapter 2 to chapter 3, he sets the standard for us. Jesus evaluates seven churches basically on the spectrum of good, healthy church to I'll spit you out of my mouth church. That's what Jesus literally says. I will spit you out of my mouth. I can't stand this church, he says. Jesus evaluates these churches through two, two rubrics, okay? Gospel doctrine. What is gospel doctrine? Gospel doctrine is what do they teach? What do they believe? How do they instruct? How do they bring correction? What, what content are they teaching in their church? And secondly, gospel culture. How are they living out the implications of their doctrine. How are they living in the world as people shaped by their doctrine? Okay. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. We've got to hold these two things together. So let's look in Acts chapter two and let's see where I'm getting this from. Acts chapter two, uh, verse 22 is where we're going to start. I could preach the whole chapter if I had time. Men of Israel. This is Peter. This is Peter's first Gospel sermon, okay? Remember what Peter did? I just want to set the stage here. Peter, God's man, ran from God, ran from Jesus, hid, denied Christ three times, and then the resurrected Jesus shows up, and Peter repents and is restored, and now Peter is about to preach his first gospel sermon after he'd been filled with the Holy Spirit, and look what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, historical man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up, according, I love this, to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You crucified, you handed him over, but the Romans did it. That's the lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me just say what's, what's going on right here. Peter denied the faith, ran away from Jesus, went back to his boats fishing, and the resurrected Jesus showed up and said, I ain't done with you yet. Go wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And Peter repents and goes and waits and is filled with the Holy Spirit. And now this man who in Jesus' darkest moment ran from him was a coward. Now this man is bold. Now this man has courage. Now this man is preaching doctrine. And he's not getting up and rubbing his hands and saying, well, God has a really nice plan for you. He wants to make you wealthy and healthy. And he wants to give you everything your heart's desires. See, that's the cultural That's the cultural sermon that we all expect to hear, right? We've been hearing it for Oprah for forever, and now some so-called preachers have started preaching this little nice self-help message that we all want to hear. Sound like a motivational speaker that you hire to bring into your business to tell you you can do it. Sounds like Stuart Smalley in Saturday Night Live, in my opinion. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. That's not what Peter does. Peter gets up and goes, this Jesus, you know the one that you've seen for three years do ministries and do work? Remember him? Who you crucified on a cross? You remember him? God raised him up. You did it, sinners. God raised him up. He couldn't stay in the ground. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. See, all of us in this room, we've sinned and therefore we will die. We were born into sin. 
and therefore we will die. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ was not born into sin because God was his father. He had no sin, no original sin in his bloodstream. Jesus never committed any sin. And so death could not hold him. So when he took the sin of the world on him and God crushed him, he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit because he had a sinless life, an incorruptible life. Death couldn't hold him. Now let's keep reading. Let's go down to 36. Let all the house of Israel know Therefore, know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. That's the Messiah and the King. This Jesus, look, whom you crucified. Now, what was the result of this sermon? Can I just tell you, this is, some of you, some people come in and they, he gets really fired up. I, and I, I kind of, I kind of felt bad. I kind of felt convinced. And we get so nervous because you never feel that anymore. Because that's one of our great values in our society. No one should ever feel convicted about anything. Except convicting other people. Right? That's the other thing. We're tolerant of everything except what we view as intolerance because we're intolerant towards what we view as intolerant. Right? That's our great value that we have today. Look, what, look at the response of this appropriate sermon to an unchristian audience. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And that's not mean. Oh, mean Peter. Fire and brimstone Peter. Peter was sweeter. The church would grow. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostle, brothers, what shall we do? You know what that is? They're caught. They're convicted and they're caught. They're cut to the heart. I am a sinner. What do I do? Peter said to them, repent. That means change directions. Believe in Jesus, change directions, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So is there this hard edge? Yes. Here's the truth. You're sinners. But is there this comforting grace that comes along with that sharp edge that brings healing? You're a sinner, but there's forgiveness in Christ. If you would repent, if you would put your faith in Jesus, there's forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is it. If there is no conviction, there is no repentance, there is no Holy Spirit. You can come into a church all you want, but if you don't have God through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you are not a Christian. For this promise is for you and for your children, thank God, and for all who are far off, that's us, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. We need to hear these words. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church grew. Preaching gospel doctrine. What is gospel doctrine? It's this. Our society believes that people are born good. And all they need is proper education. And all they need is a little help. And they're going to be naturally good people. And prisons are full of these naturally good people. Scripture teaches we are born as slaves of sin. I have never once had to teach my little sweet baby to smack me in my face. I never. I've never taught her that when I take that passy away, she should look like she's getting a demon that is coming out of her. <laughs> right? I've never taught that. That's ingrained in her. That's original sin in her. She's already perfected this mean-mugging face. Whew. I'm like, 
where did this come from? You're mean, and you're like 18 year months old, concerned about this. Every parent knows that you look at your child that was so sweet, and you're like, they might be a serial killer. <laughs> there is no compassion in this child whatsoever. I'm very concerned. Or you know, parents, if you've ever injured yourself in front of your children, <laughs> they just stand and laugh at you. We were wrestling this week. We were wrestling. Well, it was actually last week, because I'm healed up now. We were wrestling last week, and if you're a dad and you know that wrestling, it's this fine line. You're balancing this line of, I have to inflict enough pain for it to be fun, but not enough pain for them to cry, and you're balancing, and then it gets rowdier and rowdier, and then you're throwing kids on the couch, and you don't, well, my daughter, my four, almost four-year-old daughter, picks up on this increasing level of, you know, of, of intensity, and she sees a plastic toy, and she grabs that plastic toy. I'm on my back fighting off two of the other ones, and she just walks up and just spikes it. <laughs> bah, I roll over. I roll over, I'm grabbing my eye, all I hear is my other, my other son goes, Piper, you did it again! I'm like, she's doing this again, what are you, I, I roll over, I'm bleeding from my face, it cuts me open, right? This is <laughs> original sin at work <laughs> in our children, right? So the scripture teaches a different worldview than we're believing. Some of you are out there like, what in the world happens in the Dean household? <laughs> yeah, I wonder that too, actually. So, this is where we begin. This is the way we see the world, okay? We don't see the world as mostly good people. And I always joke, I said this to my missional community last week, I'm like, you know, how many people believe the, 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 the world is mostly good? And some people raise their hand, I believe the world is mostly good. And I go, really? Do you have a lock on your door? Yeah. Then you don't really believe that the world is mostly good. We all say, get your bikes in the house, kids. Why? Because there's little creeps out there that want to steal them. <laughs> Right? We all have locks on the doors because we know there's bad people out there. The Bible makes sense of this. It's evil in the heart that isn't driven out by the power of the gospel. Now, what is it? Bible says, Bible, this is so, so beauty. It's like, this is where democracy is based. We're all sinners. All of us. See, not the people in the church are good people and the people out there are bad people. This is I want to say a word, but I don't know if I can pronounce it. The democracy, see, I knew I couldn't pronounce it. The democratization of us all, we're all sinners, brings us all down to the same playing field, the same starting point. We're all sinners. And yet, here's the reality of the gospel. Here's gospel doctrine. No other religion in the world says this. Every other religion in the world basically says you're pretty good, and if you do these two, three, four, five, six things, you'll be a better person and you'll achieve enlightenment or you'll make it to heaven because good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Okay? Christianity is the only religion on the planet that has grace at its center point where Jesus Christ dies for sinners that says you're all bad and the only people that go to heaven are people who have the righteousness of Christ placed upon them by faith. What does that mean? Jesus was a perfect man who died a substitutionary death, the death that we deserve for our sins. He died. And if we put our faith in him, the perfect record that he had in heaven with, G with God, his perfect righteousness is applied to us. It's an alien, theologians call this an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not ours, counted for us, and therefore the only people to enter into the presence of God, to go to heaven when they die, to have the spirit of God living inside of them are those who have been forgiven and given grace through the resurrection, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is good news for sinners. The gospel is the great message that we get what we don't deserve. The righteousness of Christ. Let me, let me read you how um, Tim Keller describes the gospel. The gospel is the good news that through Jesus, the power of God's kingdom has entered into human history to renew the whole world. When we believe and rely on Jesus' work and record rather than ours, 
for our relationship to God, that kingdom power comes upon us and begins to work through us. So the first root of a healthy church is gospel doctrine. And what I want to hear, if I could kind of put this really simply, it means everything that God requires, he provides. God requires holiness, but he provides it in his son. God requires us to be made right with God, but he provides it in his son. Gospel doctrine. Now, why is this important? Well, bad doctrine, some of us don't like the word doctrine. We need doctrine. Doctrine is truth. Doctrine is foundation. Doctrine is something that gives us a stable foundation to build upon. But bad doctrine literally condemns people to hell. There are churches all across our city that are teaching doctrine that is not gospel doctrine. They're teaching if you're good enough or smart enough or give enough money, God will bless you. It's a different religion. It's a different gospel, Paul says in Galatians. There's other churches in our city that say, don't worry about sin. It's just the Bob Marley doctrine. Don't worry, be happy. Right? That's it. Don't worry about sin. Maybe throw a bone to Jesus. Oh, Jesus took care of that all. Doesn't really matter no more. God already paid for that. Now all that matters is you be happy. Live however you want to live. Peter says, repent. If you go to a church and you never hear the word repent, you better run. It's a bad church. It's an unhealthy church. It's a church that's about to die. The other church is a doctrineless church. A doctrineless church is kind of wishy-washy. I used to talk to this pastor and I'd give him some doctrine. He said, yes, I believe it. And the next Sunday he'd preach the exact opposite. Like what? How do you do that? Just, yeah, I believe that. Well, I believe that too. Those are opposing statements. How do you do that? I'm not postmodern enough to understand how you do that. A doctrineless church is a fragile church. It's built upon a foundation of sand. Paul says a church like this, he says in Ephesians 4.14, that it's, it's like a kite. It's a kite church. It's carried away by every wind of doctrine. A new teaching comes up. A, a new book comes out. The quote-unquote Christian bookstore prints some book and that preacher gets up and he just preaches that book and then the next week it's this book and the next week it's that book and he's just... A kite. Whatever's hot that week, he's blown around by doctrine. This church might even have a good culture. Now listen, this is the difference. You might go to this church and feel loved. You might go to this church and feel welcome. They might have great coffee. They might have a great kids ministry. They might have a great preacher. Great communicator. Let me say that. They might have a great communicator. But if they don't have gospel doctrine, they're not a healthy church, period. Many people have went through good churches and they've been stifled in what's called legalism. Obey the rules and God will bless you for years upon years upon years. Gospel doctrine leads to our second one, gospel culture. So these, these doctrineless churches, they might have happy people, they might have fun events, they might have cool services, but it's in constant danger of blowing away into foolishness and false teaching. Secondly, let's look at, so preaching the gospel, this kind of hard-edged, we're all sinners, but yet Christ loves us, we're kind of worse than we ever thought possible, but simultaneously through Christ, we're more loved than we could ever imagine. What does that do? Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. Look at chapter two, verse 42. So there's 3,000 people that get saved, and this is what happens. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were word-focused. They were, they, they were readers. They, they were focused on the apostles' teaching and learning and growing in doctrine and the fellowship. We don't use that word very often anymore. That's community. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. They were eating together. They were praying together. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed who 
all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were, that doesn't mean they had all things in common. That doesn't mean they all liked the same football team, right? And they all liked, they also had the same hobbies and they, we just got everything in common. This is such, so convenient. No, no, no. They shared everything. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Whoa. They were living in this close community of people called the church and they saw somebody who needed something and they sold what they had and they provided for their new brother and sister in Christ. See what's our culture say? Our culture is highly individualistic. It's all about you and you can have your personal faith and then go and live in your own house and don't worry about the needs of other people. Just take care of you and your family. That's not the church. The church is communal. The church is a community. The church is a people who are concerned about their brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to sell something they have to provide and meet the needs of those in their community. And day by day, what? Day by what? Sunday by Sunday? Good riddance, Christendom. Good riddance, Sunday Christians. Good riddance. And day by day. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Why did they attend the temple? Because that's where they did mission. They were on, they were Jewish. This is in Jerusalem. They're on mission to the Jews. So they would go to the temple and try to convert the Jews to Christianity. And Breaking bread where? In their homes. They had no church, church buildings. They didn't say, yeah, on the corner here, go to our church. No, no, no. They were the church. This is the community. This is the people of God. Saved by the power of God for the purposes of God. They met in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Now, listen, having gospel doctrine is really not that difficult, honestly. You know, get a systematic theology book. Read Wayne Grudem, okay? Having gospel doctrine isn't that difficult. It's, just re- it's really just a matter of sticking close to the word of God and refusing to allow the culture to influence what you preach and teach. But hear this, having a, go- a gospel culture, having a gospel culture, gospel doctrine is kind of easy. Having a gospel culture is actually really hard. It's actually impossible without the actual ho- Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel at work in a church. What is a gospel culture? From this passage, we see a few things. We see a gospel culture is devoted to teaching. That just means they're passionate for doctrine. They, they want to know right teaching. They want to know the right ways of God. They're devoted to that. Secondly, this is, this, let me just use our language. They're devoted to a missional community. They're living in a close proximity day by day with a group of people that they're praying together, that they're eating together, that they're sharing their resources. They're loving one another and knowing one another. They're living life in a missional community. Second, they're, well, I already said this, eating together, praying together, sharing your resources. They're radically generous with one another. And God added to their number daily. That means they're living lives on mission. They're making disciples who make disciples. The church was never meant to be a building, a big congregation on Sunday. It was meant to be a people on mission, living in their homes in a completely counter-cultural way that people looked in and go, whoa, that's different from us. 
How, why do these people love each other so much? Why do they share so much? Why do they live with each other so much? They get on each other's nerves, but they still stay in community. They're not defriending each other every other week on Facebook. I wasn't really in the text, but. See, this was an attractive community of people who had been changed by the gospel. It had a culture that was attractive. See, grace attracts people. Now, when I say grace, I don't mean anything goes. I'll never say that's a sin. I'll never say you're doing something wrong. That's not what grace is. Grace says, here's the truth. Here's the reality. Here's what God says is sin. And if you repent and confess your sins, you're forgiven. That's grace. A new power to live differently where we're confessing and we're repenting and we're walking together in community and we're not being divided over petty things. It's the power of a grace-filled culture. They didn't have their own church building. They didn't have a sign out front. They didn't have a great website. They didn't have a catchy sermon series. They didn't have little handouts to give out. They didn't have t-shirts. They didn't have window decals. They had an attractive community. Gospel culture. And people were joining every day. Now listen, a church that lacks a gospel culture, it's cold and harsh. It says, I love this one. This one, a a church that lacks a gospel culture, those sinners out there, that's the message. A gospel doctrine church says, these sinners right here on this stage, the only hope is the gospel of Jesus. The only hope is grace. A church that lacks a gospel culture is aloof. You come in, you sit down, you hear a little sermon. There's no, you're, you're just keep your individualistic, you know, ever, just about you. Consumeristic, I'm coming, I'm going to get a little something, then I'm going to go leave. Hopefully they gave me a little something for the week. A little pep talk. Eventually people realize you can do that on YouTube. So I'll just stay at home and watch videos. It's aloof. It's religious. Come in and act like you got everything together. Bless God, I'm good, brother. Bless God, bless God. It's consumeristic. What church would best serve our family? Hmm. I'm going to choose a church what it gives me, not what I'm going to give. It's consumeristic. It's based on capitalism. It's based on our society. It's not based on the word of God. It's cultural creative out of Christendom. What can I get out of a church? It's tribalistic, it's racism, racist, racist, white church, black church, Mexican church, Puerto Rican church, whatever. Lacking a gospel culture, gospel unites all cultures. Gospel, in Ephesians it tells us it it destroys the dividing walls of hostility that that are between us, between classes of people. Wealth, education, race, gospel destroys them all. Church lacking a gospel culture has no heart for the poor. Or maybe they have a a little group over here that takes care of the poor and everybody gives some money and then we just throw some money at the poor people, but nobody really knows who they are and nobody really cares for them. Nobody's living in community with them. You just hope that they're getting taken care of. Again, shaped by our society. Church that lacks a gospel culture feels like a seminar or an event that you go to. That was nice. That was nice. Yeah. You get a lot of notes, but you don't get a lot of heart change. A church that lacks a gospel culture majors on minor things in the gospel. I'm not going to get into that. I could go off on that for a long time. Now, how does this happen? Well, it's really no secret. To have a gospel culture, the church, listen, the church must continue to preach and to believe the gospel for themselves and not just for outsiders. 
as I close. Go to Galatians chapter 2. If I throw that out there, I, I get a, you know, you, hold, you can hold it a little bit longer. Galatians chapter 2. I am seriously closing though. Galatians chapter 2. Now listen, this is what I want to show you. Get, having a gospel culture is hard. It's hard work. Okay? Preaching the gospel is not that hard. Having a gospel culture is really hard. The apostle Peter who preached that amazing gospel sermon we just read in Acts 2 and the church was formed and all these, you know, reasons for division were just thrown away and the poor are living with the rich and they're selling things in this amazing community. It was an ongoing process. And here in Galatians 2, Peter is leading the church in Jerusalem, okay? That means he's leading a church towards ex-Jews. Ex-Jews, they so they're circumcised, they ate, they had a different diet than the Gentiles, they had a different way of keeping themselves pure and clean as the Gentiles, so they had different cultural rhythms, okay? They had different cultural rhythms than the Gentiles. And what happens is, Peter was preaching the gospel that you can eat whatever you want, it doesn't change your relationship with Jesus. Jesus took care of everything. He obeyed the law perfectly. Nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. But then he goes to this church in Galatia and all of these people, they're from a different society. They're eating whatever they want. They're throwing parties. They're having a great time. And Peter steps into that and he starts eating with them and chopping it up. And just like he's not a Jew, he's just acting like he's a Gentile. And then all of a sudden this group comes from the church in Jerusalem. All his homies come, and they're from Jerusalem, and they're like, what is he eating? What is he doing? Oh my goodness, he's breaking cultural taboos. And what does Peter do? Peter pulls back from community in the, in the Galatian church, and he goes and he sits with his boys, and he's looking good and clean. Now, the, the same Peter who preached this amazing gospel center, repent. Now look, gospel-centered sermon, repent and believe the gospel. He's not living out the implications of the gospel. He's not having a gospel culture in this church. He's not promoting a gospel culture. He's promoting division based upon works and what you eat. Now look what Paul does. Verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Paul gets in the grill of Peter, the chief apostle. Because he stood condemned. Whoa, what did he do? For before certain men came from James, that's the Jewish folks, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So he's eating, he's having a party, he's enjoying the Gentiles, he enjoyed the pay, and then the religious folk come up and whoa. He hides his beer behind his back. Put it in today's language. And the rest of the Jews acted, look, hypocritically along with him. Failure in gospel culture. So that even Barnabas, another leader, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, look at this, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? What is Paul doing? Paul saying, Peter, you're a great gospel preacher, but you're missing an implication of the gospel here. You're not living in the truth in line with the gospel. Gospel culture is being affected in a negative way in this church. What's the answer, Peter? Paul says to Peter, repent and believe the gospel, Peter. Now think about that. Peter, the chief apostle. It's never fun when you're in a missional community and somebody in your missional community uses your own sermon against you. Like, that's what I get. Like, I'm in community. You know what you said on, actually, last Sunday night, they used my sermon from Sunday, from that day. It was like, three hours ago, you said this. I'm like, crap. <laughs> I did say that. I do need to believe that. 
This is what's going on. Peter, you remember when you got up and you preached to all these different people that God doesn't accept you because you're a Jew. God accepts you because Jesus Christ was perfect for you. Your behavior doesn't matter because Christ's behavior is what counts on your, in your justification to be saved. Jesus is what matters. Remember when you said that? Now look how you're living. You're separating yourself. You're acting like these people. There's a second class of citizens. You're not living in truth of the gospel. What's the answer? Repent and believe what you did at first. Believe the gospel. This is how we create a gospel culture. Christians repent. Why do we do confession every single Sunday? It's not because we think we're Catholic or almost Catholic. It's because we are sinners. We need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, that our lives during the week go haywire. That our, if you look at our lives, you don't see this attractive community all the time. So we need to be called back to repentance. Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95th, 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, the very first thesis was our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, that sounds like negative, like really bleak. Luther seems to be saying, you're just going to be terrible forever. But that's not what Luther's saying. He was saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the faith. This is how we grow as Christians through repentance and through faith. All of life repentance is the best sign that we're growing deeply and rapidly in the character of Jesus. And so Peter gets called out and he repents. Now that's what we must do as Christians live this life of repentance. So I'm going to ask, so when I ask, let me just ask this, since I've been saying all this, is Sacred City Church a good church? Is Sacred City Church a healthy church? I would say that the fact that we're asking that question is a good sign because we have to ask ourselves this question often. How do we evaluate it? Are we gospel-centered? Are we preaching gospel doctrine? Are we developing and working for a gospel culture? Is our church being deeply shaped by gospel doctrine so that we are radically generous people? We are humble and honest, honest with our own flaws and our own sins. And we're open. We are, our homes are open. We're radically hospitable people. And I have to use the word radically because we need to be over and against our culture. We need to be more open and more hospitable than our neighbors. The gospel should be doing something deep in our souls that opens us up for people. Are we people who are seeing their sin more and more every day, but we're also seeing the beauty and the glory of God and returning from our sin and repentance in greater measures day after day after day. And then people are being added to it. Is Sacred City a good church? This is my answer. Right now? Yes. Ask me next week. Next week. I think it's like that. I think I could easily, we could all easily just get comfortable and push back and say, somehow we've arrived. No more sacrifices needed. Let's just chill. Healthy churches don't do that. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture. I pray that the Spirit would keep working in us and developing this. So if you're here this morning and and you're like, I'm an outsider, Justin, this is kind of weird. The good news of the gospel, the main thrust of Christianity is that God sent a perfect human being, 
the God man who's God and man to live the life that we are supposed to live. What you think of Christianity, all those rules, Jesus obeyed them all. And he died in our place because we've broken those rules and God doesn't grade on a curve like our culture does. God says, if you sin, you die. If a, if a person sins and never comes to faith in Christ, that person gets eternal condemnation away from the father, away from God in hell. That's what the Bible teaches. Bottom line. But the glorious good news is that Jesus kind of experienced hell for us on the cross so that we could experience heaven. And if we put our faith in him and live in this new community of people called the church, we live this life out. He makes us more like his son. We get closer like Jesus and we get holier and happier as life goes on. Until one day we get completely new bodies We get to enjoy God forever in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you're new, I invite you into this. Here's the requirements. Admit you're a sinner. Come join the rest of us. Confess those sins, turn from them, and turn to Jesus Christ. Receive his grace. It's the gospel doctrine, and come experience the gospel culture. I think we've been doing this now four and a half years at Sacred City. We've been working really hard at gospel, doc, gospel culture. And I, I think I've experienced the gospel more in this church than any other church I've ever been a part of. People making meals for one another. People taking care of one another. People babysitting one another. People laying down their lives and inviting people over. People being on mission wherever they're at. I've seen more examples of what we see in Acts chapter 2 than I've ever seen anywhere else. And it's not my doing not even our doing. It's the gospel at work in our church. Praise God for it. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for coming and living the life that we should live. We look to your life and we're in awe of it. We're blown away by it. We can even feel kind of condemned by it because you never sinned. People railed against you. People called you all kind of names, condemned you, and you never retaliated. You never shook your fist in anger at them. Even on the cross, you said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Your beauty, your holiness, your perfection, Jesus, convicts us. And yet you died for sinners. This is the gospel. Thank you for it. We believe it. We confess our sins and we accept the gift that you give us of your righteousness. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, you said, this is my body that was broken for you. You broke it for us. It's my blood that was shed for you. You shed it for us. If sin is no big deal, you didn't have to die. But it is a big deal because God is holy and we are not. And yet, so you gave your body and your blood for us. We worship you through the Lord's Supper this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.